Welcome to Thinking Edge with Ed Boudreaux. Couldn't be more grateful today. We're here with Scott Anthony, and he's a senior partner at Innisight, but also a multiple-time author. One of my favorite books is, is The First Mile, and I reference it probably on a weekly basis. So the work that, that you do is, is just incredible. And your latest book, Eat, Sleep, and Innovate, you're a co-author. So love to dig in that you know, uh, a little bit, but welcome to uh, Thinking Edge, Scott. Ned, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So I'd like to jump right in and, and ask about innovation and, and, and why is innovation so hard in, in large enterprises? And I think there's a, a pretty simple yet deliciously complex answer. So let me first give you our definition of innovation because it hints to the answer. We define innovation pretty simply as something different that creates value. And you then begin to see the root of the problem. Innovation is something different. Organizations exist to do what they are currently doing more effectively and more efficiently. So they unintentionally, in doing what they're supposed to do, constrain and contain the innovation energy that lies within the organization. It's as simple as that and as complex as that. Inertia, inertia and existing habits are the enemy. How about, I'd love you to speak more about the value part of the equation, because I learned a simple concept most recently around, you know, output in outcomes. And I think a lot of companies focus on output, right? Get the project done, get the app done, whatever it might be, whatever they're, they're choosing to, to create, but it's less about outcome. And when, you th when I think about outcomes, I think about how are you defining value? Uh, it's a great question, Ed, and I think a really important thing. So, you know, we, we, we let it be relatively loose because ultimately value to a degree is in the eye of the beholder, but it always is an external measure and it always is an outcome measure. Now that could be, depending on your context, revenues, it could be profits, it could be improved employee engagement, it could be improved patient outcomes, it could be improved satisfaction in the market, whatever it is. But there is something that you're doing where the input that you have, the product or service or process or thing that you are doing differently is leading to something that is demonstrable value. And that's really important because it then begins to get into what are some of the behaviors that you need to follow in order to live up to that definition of innovation. And one of the most important ones in our view is being customer obsessed because you can't create value unless you know the problems, the customer, the patient, the supplier, the stakeholder, the colleague, whomever you're trying to innovate for is struggling to solve. And once you understand that, well, innovation becomes relatively straightforward. Yeah, I'd like you to dig into that, you know, customer obsession. And how do you, how do you think about the words customer obsession? What are some of the kind of means and, and mechanisms or tools that you can implement to get that deep intimacy with your customer? Yeah, so those who know Inside know our heritage, know that we were co-founded by the late, great Harvard Business School professor, Clayton Christensen. And one of Clay's core models and something that we use all the time when we're out in the field is a very simple but very powerful idea. It's called Jobs to be Done. And the idea, as the name kind of connotes, is that people don't buy products and services. They hire them to get jobs done in their lives. And the Jobs to be Done concept trains you to look at the world through the eyes of the customer, and again, you can strike out customer input, patient supplier, whatever, whatever is the thing that is the unit of analysis for you. But really look at the world through their eyes and say, what are the problems that they are struggling to solve? And in our experience, there is no better way to understand that 
than to invest the time to have the empathetic connection to the customer, to really walk a mile in their shoes, to look at the world through their eyes, to listen to the world through their ears. So you can have that empathetic connection to let you know the things they're struggling, even if they can't readily articulate them. Now, of course, there are a bunch more tools that are out there, customer journey maps and so on. But that idea of empathetic connection, looking for the job to be done, in our view, is the keystone to unlock customer obsession. Great. I've uh, used jobs to be done and, and you know, really coupled that with deep empathy, listening, looking for that discovery moment in which you can really solve a deep need of, I call it whom you serve, but who you're looking to serve. And it's just been incredible discovery of uh, underlying things that uh, you wouldn't have discovered otherwise. Now, you see all sorts of interesting things if you train yourself to look at the world this way. And you see these things that sometimes don't make sense. Like you will see people who say one thing and do another thing. That's something that you see very frequently. And we've seen this a lot in healthcare, where you'll be talking to a, a consumer in their home and they'll tell you that they're very concerned with keeping up with their health and their weight. And you'll sit and watch what they do and say, your demonstrated actions do not support the things that you're saying. So right. this is a really important part of jobs to be done training. Of course, you listen to what people say, but you watch what they do much more closely because those revealed preferences are much more important than the stated preferences. Absolutely. So I have a story around that in, in which we were doing ethnographic research and you know, really talking to a, a range of folks and, and one which happened to be a mom and part of uh, a healthcare company, one healthcare company was sending scales out to their folks in order to measure their, their weight. And she said, I hate my scale. All I wanna do is I wanna feel strong, fit, to be outside you know, with my family, playing with my children on the swing set. And it's like, I think all of us just doubled back and you know, felt that deep connection, that human connection to a mom who was looking to be healthy and thinking about different ways, you know, that we could add value to her life, you know, back to your earlier kind of equation around create value, right? Value could be measured in, in terms of revenue, but more importantly, value can be measured in, in deep caring for someone and understanding, having that really deep empathy. Right. Absolutely agree. And you can, you can play with this concept even broader. You know, if you ask, what does it take to have an organization that is doing this repeatedly and reliably? You increasingly see that you need to have conditions where there is that trust and empathy inside the organization as well. So there's a concept that I think a lot of people know called psychological safety from Amy Edmondson at the Harvard Business School that essentially says you're in an environment where if you take well thought out risks that don't pan out, you don't get slapped on the wrist. And for that to happen, you have to be in a place where there's trust internal as well. And there's human caring internal as well, as Brene Brown has very eloquently written and spoken about. So there's a lot in this concept of empathy and trust and understanding, not just to innovate externally, but to have the conditions internally to enable you to do that. It's all pretty easy to talk about. Of course, it's really hard to do. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, and I'd love your kind of insights on, you know, because I've seen different trends in the industry where enterprises will go out and they'll hire an innovation firm, perhaps around a project to really drive that differentiation, that difference in thought, the trend around innovation insights. So creating a team or a group, um, an innovation uh, team specifically. And then lately in the past year or so, enterprises going out and buying innovation firms um, and then lastly, looking to really build 
innovation into an enterprise and eat, sleep and innovate for me was, was building innovation in the whole culture and, and methodologies and frameworks to, to really help. And I think that's really important for an enterprise to have that in their DNA, so to speak. I'd, I'd, li I'd like you to you know, comment either on the trends you know, that you've seen from an industry perspective, but also you know, how innovation can be thought of differently within an enterprise. Uh, 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 we could talk for another hour about just this topic, but I, I, I won't talk for an hour, but let me make three, three overarching points. Number one, I think one thing that we see just demonstrative proof around is that more and more organizations say that innovation is mission critical for us. Uh, this was true before the pandemic. I think the pandemic has only reinforced it because change in many places has been dramatically accelerated. So people say, we used to be able to dabble at this, no more. This really has to be something that is a deep capability. That's point number one. Point number two, we of course are firm believers that having this within the DNA of an organization as you deal with never ending change is absolutely critical. And one of the focal case studies in Eat, Sleep, Innovate, DBS Bank here in Singapore, I think is a really interesting example of an organization that has innovated to its core and really transformed its culture from a stodgy, slow moving bank to one that functions like a startup at scale. And one of the things that's interesting as you unpack that story is the innovation function inside the organization has done something unusual. The innovation function has one and only one guardrail. It can do whatever it wants, as long as under no circumstances does it actually innovate. The point is not to launch new products, not to introduce new services, but to unlock and unleash the innovation potential within the 28,000 people at DBS. And that I think is a really important thing if you're trying to innovate at scale. Then the third and final point that I'd make is that's really good if you're trying to transform your existing culture, trying to transform your existing operating model. If you are also trying to push the frontier and trying to do big, bold, new things, which you might call disruptive, you might call white space, you might call in previous work we've done transformation B, that always requires some amount of dedicated special purpose resources that are really leading the charge to reinvent, reimagine and do new things it doesn't work otherwise. So I think there very much is a yes and here where you need to have the ability to think about raising the tide so the entire organization can innovate better and also have the special forces that can go and push the frontier for the really new, new things. And again, there's a lot more we could talk about in this area, but that's probably enough to have some departure points off of. Yeah, I love, I love that idea. So almost having this large scale capability within the enterprise that nothing's off the table, bringing ideas to different dimensions, different functions, having that built in as a cultural embedded in their DNA such that they, they feel comfortable in, in having that psychological safety around bringing forth new ideas that could dramatically change part of the organization. And then I, I worked recently with a firm that had an idea platform. And I said, that's, that's great, but like directed innovation I believe is, is highly impactful where you're looking for that big, bold idea, but it's very specific. And this is one of the paradoxes of innovation. So do you want to have loose controls where you let hundreds of thousands or whatever flowers bloom? Do you want to have tight controls where you direct it? And the answer is yes. Now you want to have both of those simultaneously, which seems paradoxical, but if you manage to do it, you recognize that directing is good and having freedom is good. So you need to have directed freedom. And again, that feels like it's an oxymoron to say those two words together, but that's really what enhances the ability for innovation to succeed. The direction is the same thing as the difference between kind of a low watt light bulb and a laser beam, right? So if you don't direct it, all the light gets diffused. 
if you direct it, you get something really powerful, but you also need the freedom to say the laser beam is going that way or that way or that way. And we got to try different things in it to see what's going to work. So you really need to have both of those things, I think, to realize the full power of innovation. And more broadly, these kind of paradoxes, this is the kind of thing that we need to train our brains to be able to deal with. We've got to be comfortable with discomfort. We have to be consistently inconsistent. We have to be realistic visionaries. We have to be loose tight at the same time. And it feels like you can't do that, but you actually can. And it really changes the game when you can think that way. I really love that. When we, when we talk about the, um, the thinking edge, it's, it's shifting mindsets. So I love that juxtaposition of feeling tight and loose at the same time, but having comfort and freedom to operate in any one of those dimensions that you just mentioned. That's amazing. And it's not easy to do, but you know, there is, a, and not to geek out too much in the academic literature, but there is an emerging field in academic literature around this topic that has specific instruments to measure an individual's paradox mindset and posits certain paradoxical leadership behaviors and talks about what you can do to build it. So this is all stuff that is increasingly accessible to us. I simplify it down to three elements. One is you need to have what's called a, a negative capability. This is from a, a letter the poet John Keats wrote in 1817, where Keats talked about the importance of, of being in mysteries, uncertainty, and doubt without succumbing to them. So that's basically, you can hold yourself back. Then the positive part of that is a growth mindset, which I think is reasonably well understood these days, where you can see possibility, you don't believe that capabilities are fixed. And then that's all fed by applied curiosity, with I think Jeff Bezos from Amazon demonstrating that extremely well. You know, we're, we're talking on the day that Jeff Bezos has announced he's stepping down as the CEO of Amazon, and he ended his letter to his employees saying how it's still day one. This idea that we're still at the beginning, we have to be curious, we have to think different. So if you can combine those things together, the negative capability to hold and see, the growth mindset to imagine, and the applied curiosity to create, that's in our view how you go and confront the paradoxes of innovation. I love that, that's amazing. And I'd love for you to dig into you know, uh, eat, sleep, and innovate. You had some really powerful methodologies and, and frameworks in there. You know, as we start to, to think about how we can imbibe that into an enterprise, what would the, the steps be? What, what are some of the you know, foundational principles that you have in there that would really be helpful to enterprises? Yeah, so again, the, the core idea in the book is the biggest blocker to innovation inside organizations is this idea of inertia. So the big question is, how do you go and address that inertia? Lots of people have written about culture change. There's lots of things we know we need to do. There's got to be a motivating vision. Leaders need to walk the talk. It needs to be in your systems, all that. All that is true. And additionally, you have to have a specific way to confront that inertia. What we do in the book is we essentially steal shamelessly. Pablo Picasso, good artist copy, great artist steal. We tried to steal an idea from the behavior change literature and apply it inside organizations. The idea that we stole is this concept that we call the BEAN. The BEAN is an acronym. It stands for Behavior Enabler, Artifact, and Nudge. What that in essence is, is a way to fight a two-front battle against inertia. The behavior enabler goes after the rational, logical part of our brain with checklists and coaches and so on. The artifacts and nudges go after the unconscious, where we're making decisions without even realizing or thinking about them. This is the picture in the wall that soaks into our unconscious. This is getting something that shows we're eighth out of tenth in our department and something, and we just want to be better at it without even thinking about it, gamification and so on. 
And the thoughtful combination of the behavior enablers, artifacts, and nudges can enable you to overcome the inertia, to follow the behaviors that ultimately drive to innovation success, like customer obsession we talked about previously, like being curious, like being adept in ambiguity, and so on. And more broadly, if you say we want to change culture in our organization, you ask the question, what culture do we want? What are the specific behaviors we want that culture to embody? What's stopping us from doing this today? And how do we go plant some beans to overcome those blockers and encourage those behaviors? That's an, an incredible framework. Where have you seen success uh, with this being applied? As so I, I mentioned DBS Bank before, yep. and DBS yep. is kind of the, the red thread that runs through the book. You know, DBS didn't consciously, as it was going through its cultural transformation in the early days, use the beans idea. We kind of co-discovered it when we intervened with a development center in Hyderabad in India that was having some cultural challenges. But when we looked back at the DBS story, we saw recurrently they were doing things like this. As an example, DBS is saying we got to transform from being a stodgy bank into something that functions like a startup at scale. That means our people need to learn a lot more. But right now, people are busy. It's hard for them to find the right class in our traditional learning curriculum to teach them what they need. So they introduced something called a Gandalf scholarship. Now, why is it called Gandalf? A slight deviation. One of the changes that DBS has made is it says, we can't view ourselves as competing against local banks like UOB and OCBC in Singapore, or even regional or global banks like HSBC or JP Morgan Chase. We have to view our competitive set as Google. Alibaba, Netflix, Amazon, LinkedIn, and Facebook. If you put a D in between all those companies, the first letter of all of them, you form the word Gandalf, the wizard from Lord of the Rings, and that's kind of their avatar for their transformation journey. Anyway, the Gandalf Scholarship. The Gandalf Scholarship is a thousand Singapore dollar grant that anybody can get to study whatever they want, as long as they teach back what they learn to the organization. And you've had people who've learned things that are kind of square on business as usual, like how do we get better at using big data to make decisions? And you've had people do things like how do we use storytelling to influence the way that we do things inside and outside of the organization? The teachbacks are recorded, they're posted on a communal website, thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of people watch it. So they get the double benefit where an individual learns and then a broader community can benefit from that learning as well. So that's just one of many things that DBS has done to very consciously and purposefully change behavior inside its organization to move from stodgy bank to startup at scale. And it has worked. That's incredible. I mean, one of my foundational theories is that, you know, I could read an incredible, you know, book <laughs> and, and say, hey, Scott, I read this incredible book. You read it. We both put it on the shelf and nothing, nothing happens with it. But I think the, the key is, you know, hey, read the book, deconstruct it, understand the frameworks and models, apply it, see where it works, or if it doesn't work, adjust. And that way you're learning. I mean, that teach back model is embedding the learning organization uh, within the organization and, and having people teach. That's just incredible. I think it's absolutely right. So that, that idea of making sure it is a double loop learning where you're learning and then you're learning about learning, I, I think is an absolutely critical thing. And the idea too of measuring, this is one of the things that DBS has just been very thoughtful about. You know, in, in the book, there's a whole bunch of other beans that DBS has introduced. And in fact, 101 beans from DBS and other companies in the book and in its companion website, eatsleepinnovate.com. 
But the, the key thing that has allowed DBS to succeed is for every bean they introduce, they're very thoughtful about what are we trying to achieve and how do we measure it. And they can therefore say for the Gandalf Scholarship, we get a 30-fold increase on dollars spent in terms of return on learning for a Gandalf Scholarship versus traditional in-class learning. Now, you got to be thoughtful sometimes or creative about how you introduce a measure for something like this. But the discipline to say, what are we trying to improve? Kind of back to our early conversation about creating value. What are we trying to improve? How can we tell? If we don't know, can we create a proxy for it so we can measure it? And if it's working, we can do more of it. If it's not working, we can either adjust it or we can shelve it and we can move on to the next one is a really important part of this discipline. Right. Absolutely. And Scott, you mentioned a few times startup at, at, at scale. How do you think about that term? A lot of enterprise will say, hey, we're operating in some cases in some groups and organizations like a startup. How do you think about the term startup at scale? It's really interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So again, D DBS, one of the things that it, it did well is take the time to define what exactly does that mean? So, you know, it's a nice thing to say, but, you know, along some dimensions, it also could be something that's a little daunting and scary. I mean, do you really want 28,000 people to be operating like a chaotic startup where you know, no one's really in control? Of course not. But what they said is what we're really, what we mean when we say that is there are five behaviors that you would see in a 28,000 person startup. You would see people acting agilely, you would have people, you'd be a learning organization, you'd be customer obsessed, you'd be data driven, you'd experiment and take risks. So those were the five specific behaviors and they had some sub behaviors under all of those things. But they said this isn't just a management platitude. There are specific behaviors underneath each of these things, each of which again, we can reasonably measure or come up with proxies for, each of which we can say what's standing in the way of us doing this, each of these we can then go and intervene against. So whatever it is, whatever it is you're trying to be as an organization, whether it's a culture of innovation, whether it's a culture of customer centricity, whether it's a, a culture of caring, it doesn't matter what it is, taking the time to get granular and say, what exactly does that mean? What behaviors would people follow that would show that you have this kind of culture? Then are they doing them or are they not? Now, there was a, a great article in Slow Management Review last year by Don Sullis, lead author, that looked at the relationship between a company's stated values and its actual evidence behaviors. And shockingly, shockingly, there's basically no relationship. So companies will say these are their values. And then if you go and do sentiment or sentient analysis and what you see in Glassdoor and employee reviews and so on, they're not actually following the values that they say are important to them. So what actually are your values? Are they the things that hang on the walls or are they the day-to-day -day behaviors? You know the answer. So <laughs> you get the behaviors right and make sure you're actually doing them. Yeah, that's a great point. So Scott, you're a you know, serial author. Innosite's an incredible company. What do you see that's like next? If you think about like now, next future trends, uh, what's your next book perhaps, or, or concepts that you're thinking about lately that are, are, are starting to gain traction? You know, and one of the things that I, I, I use as a, or think about as a metaphor, you know, when I, I was growing up, one thing that I discovered I've got a very strange skill in is the game Whack-A-Mole, which I don't know if you know the game or not, but you know, yeah. Carnival game, the little thing pops up and you, I've never lost the game of Whack-A-Mole. It's just, I don't know what it is, but it's just a, a, a special and useless skill that I have. 
But uh, as, a, as a metaphor, that's a little bit what it's like trying to address the, the famous innovator's dilemma that Clayton Christensen identified in his book 24 years ago now. Right, yeah. The dilemmas of disruption are really hard. They're really challenging. And, and, and I've been trying to, along with my colleagues, to untangle them for more than two decades. And I think we've got a really good set of answers. We've got good technical answers. We've got lots of good books, lots of good tools. We know how to innovate now. We know the steps. We know how to structure for it. We've now got something to say about culture. We know about strategy, but another mole has popped up. And that really is the, the human side of it. It's the leadership side of it. And I hinted at this a little bit in the conversation we had before about leading through paradox and the importance of building an adaptive capacity that can combine together the things that we talked about before. In my view, that's the next frontier of what you have to ultimately address if you are to take those dilemmas of disruption and turn them into something that you can defang or even turn into an opportunity. We're getting closer, but there's still a lot of work to be done to really, really be able to wrestle these things to the ground. That's a great point. I mean, we saw a lot of this during the pandemic where we were challenged by a lot of the problems that we saw in enterprises that were flexible, that had incredible leadership, rise to the challenge and almost compress time in a way because we were all in, a, in an extreme situation that we needed to innovate. We were forced to innovate, and you know, whether it be education or healthcare and a multitude of other industries that had to adapt. And, you know, I think what was the most important thing is that we were human. We were making decisions. How do we how do we save people? How do we rapidly deploy testing? How do we how do we feed people, right? I mean, just an incredible time that we just lived through and and all the innovations that that came about in a very compressed time. Yeah, it really is amazing when you think back, you know, you go back now 11 months ago, and, you know, there's legitimate concerns that the world just stops. And, you know, I, I remember I was talking to a friend who does some supply chain work for the Coca-Cola company. And just think about it for a minute. You know, they operate in 200 different countries. They, they, they've got manufacturing facilities all around the world. And the world has just this amazing patchwork of policies that are formulated overnight about movement. And somehow the Coca-Cola company has to navigate this global uncertainty and make sure it's concentrate keeps getting produced and keeps shipping and keeps delivering. And there are everyday miracles that allow that to happen. And, you know, and this is something that is just a small embodiment of what we saw all around the world. It's a demonstration that what holds us back inside organizations is not the people in our organizations. Uh, people, human beings are ingenious, they're creative, they're inventive, they're innovative, they're capable of doing miraculous things. It is the systems and structures inside the organizations that are the enemy. And we had these moments where they relaxed because they had to last year, where leaders acted more human because it was just the right thing to do. And my hope is that we will reflect on this and say that this is one of the pandemic premiums Let's have a lot more humanity. Let's have a lot more relaxation. Let's allow the humans inside organizations to do the things that they are capable of doing. Whether that will happen or not, I think comes down to what leaders do as we begin to move forward into what I hope is not the new normal, because I hate that phrase. I hope it really is the new better. That's a, a lot more inspiring, I think. Yeah, let's start using that. I love, I love that, the new better, incredible. So Scott, we love to ask one question at the end of a, a podcast. What three pieces of advice, and I think in this case, it would be an organization, an enterprise that's aspiring to be more innovative. What, what advice would you give them? Yeah, so the three pieces of advice I would give for an organization that's trying to be more innovative is number one, 
Be specific in what that means. Be specific about the behaviors that you want to see. Number two, be honest about the things that you are doing instead of those behaviors. And when I say be honest, if you say, why aren't we doing this today? Don't let people say, well, we don't have time to do it, or people are afraid to do it, or we don't have the skills to do it. That's not good enough. Explain what exactly you're doing instead of the things you want to do. And number three, get busy acting against it. Plant some beans, go and encourage the behaviors, overcome those blockers. Don't just talk about it, take active interventions to go and shape the culture that you see. Listen, if a bank in Singapore, a regulated entity in a process-obsessed country can do this, any organization in the world can do it. I love it. Be specific, be honest, and act. Great, great advice. Scott, I couldn't appreciate you more today, and, and thanks for being on Thinking Edge. Ed, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Be well. Awesome. Thank you.